Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, today is a it's a exciting day because we're um, going to start um, our series here on, the, on on life groups and to give the the church body basically the reason why we're we're doing what we're doing. And um, today is gonna we're going to dive into the the theologic theological reason of why, and we have to have that in place because that's that's going to be the foundation. Of, of every one of our life groups, foundation to understanding. And uh, definitely, as people, I think uh, naturally in all of us, we have this longing for community. We have this longing for, for deep relationships, but there is a problem. Uh, some of you have heard of this book. Uh, it's called Bowling Alone. The subtitle is The Collapse and Revival of American Community. And it was written by a Harvard researcher by the name of Robert Putnam. And the study basically shows how we have become increasingly disconnected from one another. Social structures like the PTA, church, political parties basically have disintegrated. And the famous illustration that's used from the book is, is bowling, that even though uh, this book was written in the 90s and, and more and more people were bowling, uh, less people were being involved in bowling leagues. And the book also talks about social capital uh, in, in that, that's something that we all possess. For example, in our, within our own social networks, we all have some sort of social capital. It's a concept that when you have a flat tire or you run out of gas, you, you can pick up the phone and call a friend and they'll pick you up without charging you. Or think a quote from Yogi Berra sums it up well. If you don't go to somebody's funeral, they won't come to yours. To read to you some statistics, in 1960, 62 0.8% of Americans of voting age participated in the presidential election, whereas by 1996, the percentages had slipped to 48.9. While most Americans still claim a serious religious commitment, church attendance is down roughly 25 to 50% from the 1950s. And the number of Americans who attended public meetings of any kind dropped 40% between 1973 and 1994. Even the once stable norm of community life has shifted, one in five Americans moves once a year, while two in five expect to move in five years. Putnam claims that this has created a U.S. population that is increasingly isolated and less empathetic towards its fellow citizens, that is often angrier and less willing to unite in communities or even as a nation. It's interesting to note, too, that as of 2004, a quarter of those polled in the U.S., reported that they lacked a confidant with whom to discuss important personal matters. And nearly half of all respondents reported being only one confidant away from social isolation. Since social isolation, that is the lack of any confidants, strongly predicts premature death. And these are very sobering statistics. So we definitely have an issue. A lot of people are isolated. There is a lack of community. Especially in Alaska, we're, we're very independent. The pioneering spirit is alive and well in Alaska. And when we see a problem, <clears throat> I think our natural tendency is to offer some kind of solution. We're all very pragmatic. It's like, hey, you know what? I know why that is, and I can offer my two cents on that as to how we can fix that. And it's the same way when we see even issues in the church. right? We see an issue, and we're like, hey, we know how to deal with that. And pragmatism isn't evil in itself, but I think oftentimes it leads us to some wrong ideas. 
I think primarily we need to look to God first. Because God, when we look at God through the lens of the gospel, he gives us the right perspective. I was um, reading a book by the author of the name of uh, Christian Smith, and he's a, a Christian theologian and socialist, and he did this ma- massive uh, research on, on young people, and it's called Soul Searching. And one of the beliefs that characterizes the young people of our day, which also characterizes a lot of Christians in America, is this, is this belief, what's called, uh, the acronym is MTD. And it stands for Moral Therapeutic Deism. That so many young people are under this belief that, one, my faith is moralistic. That, you know what, it's all about morals. It's all about doing right or wrong. It's all about making sure I follow the rules and then I'm a good person. It's also a therapeutic in that, you know what, God is seen as this cosmic vending machine. He's there for me as my therapist. You know, he's like, he's like my counselor there, and, and, and I go to him for answers, and, he, and I expect one. It's also deism in that so many young people believe that God is not a personable God. It's like the mentality that, you know what, God just simply wound up the clock and is just letting it run. He's not actively involved in our affairs today. And when you look at those things, every one of those elements in the scriptures are enemies of the gospel. You look at moralism. That if we were to base our salvation on what we did, that's an enemy of the gospel. We're putting, we're putting our, our, our righteousness on what we do. And not on the perfect work, finished work of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I mean, therapeutic, even though God does care about our, our deepest desires, he, he, cares, he, he, he wants to meet us where we're at, and he does. My biggest need isn't my, my, my felt needs or my unmet needs. My biggest need is a savior because I'm a sinner under the wrath of God. And deism, that God is this impersonal God, is so far from the truth. The song we sang, Jesus, Messiah, we are, I mean, from Matthew 1, that he's Emmanuel, he's God with us came to actively live among a people that despised him. And these are all enemies to the gospel. So reading a story from a youth pastor, he's, this is what he says regarding this belief of moral therapeutic deism. He says, I sat in a waffle house one early morning talking with a dad who had caught his son looking at pornography. His family had just transferred from a nearby church that spent through the roof, creating the most spectacular show in church, complete with fog machines, strobe lights, professional musicians, writing Christian lyrics to Lady Gaga songs. In between the dueling DJs, his family was starved for the bread of life, but despite their burnout over endless entertainment, they didn't know an alternative. This is the dad speaking to the youth, youth pastor. He looks at him and he says, I just think you need more games. If you had more games and funny skits than my son would have been at church, not looking at porn. This is the youth pastor. I was shocked. Here was a man who had left the church over too much entertainment and now wanted it back. I realized that moral therapeutic deism wasn't just a problem in the culture of American teenagers, but in the culture of the American church. The larger influence of a success over faithfulness model of American Christianity is having devastating effects on youth ministry. And it's not just youth ministry, it's just Christians in general. And what really it is, is this me-centered theology. Me becomes centers, what I think is right, what others think is wrong. And it's a danger, it's an enemy to the gospel. And what is it that liberates us? 
Last week, walking through Second Peter, the very thing that liberates us is the good news of Jesus. It's the gospel. And today we're going to be <clears throat> we're going to be looking at the triune nature of God. And this is how I want to approach it. I was talking last week. The gospel is the lens in which you need to view all of life. It's something that you never outgrow. The gospel is something that you and I have to revisit every day. And when we do, it liberates us. I don't know about any of you, but have you, have you ever felt ashamed because of something that you've done in your past, post-Christian? I have. And what, what was it that grounded you back into reality when you were ashamed of that thing that you, that, you, that you did? Was it not the gospel? Was it not Jesus saying, I mean, honestly, the words of Christ to me, every time I struggle with that is, Chris, why are you ashamed? In the cross, in my love, I love you perfectly. There's not, you don't need to hide behind anything. Insecurities, why are you insecure? I know you inside out. Why are you ashamed? Or the times that I've been frustrated with people. Has anyone here ever been frustrated with a person in their life? Just saying, man, why do they do that? Can't stand them. And just picturing Christ on the cross as he was throwing insults to say, forgive them for they know not what they do. And to also rebuke me by saying, Chris, if you don't forgive men their sins, your father in heaven won't forgive you of your sins. The logic being because if we've tasted the grace of God and we understand the magnitude of how much we've been forgiven, to just extend a little forgiveness to people is nothing in comparison. That's how the gospel liberates us. It's continuously challenging our thinking and grounds us in reality. And when we view God through the gospel lens, it allows us to respond properly to life because it gives us a picture of reality that we do live in a fallen world, that you and I desperately need redemption. And for those of us that have been justified in the faith, we're in this process of sanctification, of, of being made holy in the image of Christ. And it is a process, and it is a, it is a process by fire where God is using the circumstances of our life to mold us into his perfect son. And that's comforting to me. And how you view God is so critically important. For example, if any of you view God as this totalitarian ruler, it's going to affect how you live. You're going to live a life of bitterness, fear, and, and rejection as well. Because you're thinking that, you know what, life is like a big survivor episode. I've got to do everything I can to, to, to prove myself to God. I don't want to be judged by him. I want to make sure I'm good with God. And we run around and that affects how we live our life and how we approach relationships. And we know that all good theology begins with God because how you view God matters. For example, if you were to view God through that lens of he's moralistic, therapeutic, deistic, it's going to affect how you live your life. You're going to think that you can earn his approval. You're going to think that he's just this big cosmic vending machine. And you're going to also think that he's not there, that he's impersonal. And as we come and we approach the triune nature of God, one of the things that our church fathers fought for was that God is personable. Every member of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are, are personable. That they have thought, feeling, intellect, will. And that's what we're going to focus on today, all right, is uh, the Trinity. Because this is going to be the why behind the what, behind community. And we're going to have to consistently come back to the Trinity if we're going to be grounded in gospel community. Because if not, we're going to look to other things, and then we're going to be so far off base. 
If you would turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. I love Mark's Gospel. The reason why is Mark, he just starts, I mean, he just, he, he hits the ground running, all right? For those of you that are ADD, Mark is your gospel, okay? Because chapter 1, kaboom, he's there, all right? I mean, love the genealogy. It's critically important. But, you know, for those of you that just want to get right into it, Mark chapter 1. And right here, verse 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee came. Sorry. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Not to camp out here too long, just to give a, this, this picture of the triune God at work. Do you see that picture? Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan, going into the water, coming out, the Spirit of God descending, and God the Father saying, this is my son, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. And if you remember from Second Peter, Peter also Reminds the believers that I was there. I was there when this happened. I was there when I heard the voice of God the Father speak to Jesus. And the Trinity is a beautiful picture. And this is a picture that you have to keep in your mind if you're going to understand gospel community. This is the very thing that you and I have to consistently return to as we begin to embrace relationships with each other within this context. If not, we're going to be discouraged, we're going to forget the purpose, and we're going to be misled. The doctrine of the Trinity is often a doctrine that is neglected today. You and I, we we affirm it as evangelical believers, but I think oftentimes we, we fail to study it. Maybe because, I don't know, some of us may be intimidated, some of us may just hate to read, some of us may hate history because we have to look at history in order to get a proper understanding of this doctrine. But let me challenge all of you that this is something we need to study because in reality, when you study the Trinity, it's really an exercise in love. God throughout the scriptures has revealed himself as father, son, and Holy spirit. And those who love God desire to know him personally and to know more about him. To give you an illustration, um, my wife is a complex person. I admit that I don't know everything there is to know about her. There are times when I simply cannot figure her out. But my love for her causes me to want to know her better. Any husbands or guys out there that can relate that, man, just sometimes women are, amen. (laughs) And I draw this correlation because surely our human attempt to understand God will be even more difficult. But it's such a blessing to know my wife more and more. And this is the reward. And how much more the reward for us to grow in our knowledge of the Almighty God. There's much to be read here. And don't be discouraged. Don't dismiss it as well. Don't, don't just tune it out. Attempting to understand the triune God is an exercise of love. And remember that. And if you're not being blown away by God consistently, I mean, examine your heart. God is consistently revealing himself, and we should consistently be being blown away. If you remember um, from, from Brad's sermon on, on Revelation, that's going to be a mark of heaven that we're just going to constantly be in awe of the one who saved us. 
And as we come to this doctrine of the Trinity, it should, you know, yeah, you know, it should, uh, it should really humble you, but it's, it should also reveal more and more of him that you're just like, whoa. And also, we need to understand the doctrine of the Trinity because there are all types of different teaching today. Just as false teaching abounded in the day of Peter and Paul, and they had to consistently define who Jesus is, there's a lot of false teaching today. I'll give you an example. For those of you that keep up, keep up with um, the evangelical realm, you guys know Pastor James McDonald. He was actually just here. And Pastor James McDonald and Mark Driscoll run what's called the Elephant Room. And they just had one in 2012 in January. And there was, a, there, was a, there was a big debate because James McDonald and Mark Driscoll brought on a guy by the name of Pastor T.D. Jakes. And the reason why there was such upheaval in the evangelical realm was that all the conservative Christians were like, T.D. Jakes, this guy is a health and wealth. He's, in the past, he's preached health and wealth, prosperity gospel. Uh, in the past, he's, like, he's embraced oneness, Pentecostalism. In other words, that, that he didn't embrace the doctrine of the Trinity. And, you know, there's a, there was all this debate. And uh, just to show you that, you know what, it is, it's, it's in a debate that is alive and well. And we have to make sure that we're grounded in our understanding of the Trinity. And hence, statement of beliefs are important. It's where we start. It's the why behind everything. So as we talk about doctrine, don't, don't tune me out. I mean, t- test everything that is said from every preacher, from every pulpit. First John 4 tells us to. And I understand that I'm a fallible man attempting to even just put any kind of description to a God who is infinite. But I, we're just praying that um, as we talk about the Trinity, that it would at least cause your, your heart and mind to want to know him more and to pursue that is the prayer. And I know that practically speaking, we could start from biblical exhortations to say why you need community. Maybe we could list all the verses of, of all the one another saying, this is why you need to be in community. But again, we would be starting from a pragmatic approach. We have to first paint this picture of the triune God that's going to give us this clear image of why you and I need community today and what it's for. And I know, like I said, I know many people don't read Statement of Beliefs anymore these days, but if you were to go our, to our church's website, you would go to a section where it says what we believe. And under that section, it would say God. And under that section, it would say, God, we believe that there is one true holy God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom possesses equally all the attributes of deity and the characteristics of personality. In the beginning, God created out of nothing the world and all the things therein, thus manifesting the glory of his power, wisdom, and goodness. By his sovereign rule, he is operating throughout history to fulfill his redemptive plan. And we list Lots of passages, Genesis 1, 1, 1, 26, Deuteronomy 6, 4, so forth and so forth. And this is critically important because the challenge of the early disciples was to make sure that they passed on this proper understanding of who Christ is, who God is as well. They had to really, in essence, bring together three strands of belief, right? Their, their rock-solid belief and tradition that there's only one God, monotheism. The second strand that they had to also incorporate is that Jesus' claims of being Lord, being one with the Father, making claims of divinity as well. They knew that. That's another strand. And the third strand they had to also incorporate was experience and presence of the Holy Spirit. And as we look back in history, we see one of the a couple important things that happened in 325 <clears throat> at the Council of Nicaea. 
What was determined simply there was this. The reason why this, this meeting and gathering of our church fathers was so important was because it was at this meeting that our church father said, you know what? Jesus is God. And the background behind this was this, was that there was false teaching that was going around. It was well-intentioned men like Sibelius and Arian and Arius, which we get Arian theology from. The belief that, you know what? There is God. He's separate, but he created Jesus. And it was during this time that we can thank, uh, we can thank God that there was a man by the name of Athanasius who said, no, 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 hold on. That's not right. There's something not right about that. So we look at the scriptures, and as we have the traditions passed on from us, we see that Jesus was God. And that if you strip that of him, all right, we're, we're really watering down salvation. That's why it was critically important at that council. And we see the theology here. For those of you that have ever engaged a Jehovah's Witness, it's Arian theology. Jesus is not God. God is God. And then they'll reword John 1.1. And the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God, small g. Jesus was merely a creation of God. Do you guys see a problem with that in terms of salvation history and even the claims that Jesus Christ made? So Athanasius agreed here, and this is what he says. If not fully God, we did not truly receive salvation for in salvation, we participate in the divine nature. The word was made man in order that we might be made divine. So it was at this council that Jesus was placed next to the Father as being fully divine. The next council had to deal with the issue of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we got Jesus now. Okay, God is clear, all right? We got Jesus down, but the Holy Spirit. It's after the council of Nicaea at Constantinople there was this conflict because uh, followers of Arius were still teaching the way they wanted to teach. They were teaching that the son, Jesus, was the first creation of God. Now they were adding that the spirit of God was a creation of Jesus. Again, Athanasius steps into the picture. <laughs> Got to love this guy. But he argued, that the, he argued for the full deity of the spirit, that like that of the son, as we give divinity to the son, Jesus, it has to be given to the spirit. And just tons of scriptural examples. For example, in, in Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, when, when they lied to the Holy Spirit, it was lying to God. We know that the Holy Spirit is not this impersonal force. Like, like Star Wars, you have the force. Okay? Or e even in, um, in the movie Avatar, the worldview, right? That there is that, that stream. It's not this impersonal. The Holy Spirit in the scriptures tells us, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. It's a very personal Athanasius noted that the Holy Spirit is placed on equal footing with the Father and the Son in the baptismal formulas, in the apostolic benedictions, and the Trinitarian doxologies found in the New Testament, as well as early Christian literature. Athanasius was a defender of the faith. He fought that the Spirit of God was divine, and he showed that it's necessary that the Spirit be divine for salvation. And with that, Let's just read the scripture, okay? So you have this understanding of the divinity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay, We're not going to dive into this text. I'm merely just going to read it. You, maybe this week you can spend time reading it. 
but Ephesians 1. And we're just going to read verse 3 to 14. And just look for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Do you see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have existed co-eternally? And we, we know all this talk here of, pre, of predestined prior to, prior to everything, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were working together as one, initiating plan redemption to redeem a people, the church. So we say from those two councils that one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all defined. And if you look in your Bibles, you will not find the word Trinity. I know many of you are aware of that. And it wasn't until after the council we could thank um, uh, our fathers that are called the Cappadocian fathers that uh, developed this doctrine of, okay, as we, as we look at the Father, we look at the Son, we look at the Holy Spirit, okay, even though they're, they're three interdependent realities, they're really of one essence. They've co-eternally existed for all of time. And this is huge. Why? Because God himself is a living, loving, perfect community. The one God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, exists within himself, perfect community. So if you've ever gotten the teaching that God created us because he was lonely, that's theological error. God was complete in himself in, that, in the context of community. But now it's, here we come is to the concept of the image of God in Genesis 1, 27 through 28, where it is written, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We talk about an image bearer. We see at the very DNA because of who God is that relationships are to be at our DNA as well. God is a relational God. The Trinity is relational. Every member of the Trinity is relational and is in perfect unison. And there's mutual love and submission and community within that context. And as we look at the Genesis account, we even see as uh, God had created Adam. Do you remember what God had said? It's not good that who be alone. Okay? I mean, God was still creating. He was still creating man and woman to, be, to, to corporately bear his image. 
And it's a beautiful picture in Genesis 2, right? Adam is given the task of naming the animals. I don't know how exciting that was for him, but he was going around and, you know, there's a dog, there's a giraffe, and so forth and so forth. But it was still good for man not to be alone. And we know that God had put Adam into a deep sleep. And as Matthew Henry, the wise commentator, states that he pulled woman out of man's side, not out of his head, so that she would rule over him, nor not out of his feet, so that he would trample on him, but out of his side, so that he would be, she would be the suitable helper for him and complete him. And women, don't be offended when the scripture refers to women as helpers. It's uh, throughout the scriptures have been a title given to God himself. But it's, that carries that essence of one who completes. And we see this beautiful picture in, in, in Genesis 2, 23. If you look in your scripture, if you look in your Bible, you'll see that it's, it's indented because it's in the form of a poem. One theologian comment said, you know what? I think Adam sung, sung this song, sung this poem to Eve. He had awakened from his deep sleep, just got done naming all the animals. And he sees this beautiful, beautiful creation from God made for him. And he sings, I'll save you the liberty, but flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. And we see this community existing prior to the fall that is beautiful. Do you remember what the scripture says about this couple? They were naked and unashamed. There's no reason to hide. They were unashamed. As we all know, that didn't last very long. Sin entered the world. And at its core essence, all right, even though the scriptures use so many different words for sin, whether it's disobedience, missing the mark, so forth and so forth, at its core essence, it's the destruction of community. Sin is the destruction of community. So you know, as God is triune, he simply calls us to image him as relational beings, and we can only image him when we're in relationship. So a strategy of the enemy is this, is how can I get these people not to image God? I need to destroy this relationship. Because when I destroy this relationship, they won't image their creator. They'll be estranged from each other. And uh, my purpose will be done, is what the enemy thinks. And you look at sin, what does it do? Immediately, it isolates, does it not? Sin always isolates and estranges For example, we don't want to be in the light when we're in the dark because the light exposes us. It shows us the areas of our life that we need to change and the things that need to be removed. What about solitary confinement? They've done studies on solitary confinement of prisoners. It's like one of the most cruelest things you could do to a person is put them in solitary confinement with no interaction with people. being made in the image of God. Let me tell you what that means for us as believers. One, where we have a special standing before God. As humans create an image of God, we're recipients of God's love. This means that each of us has a special worth in God's sight. For example, Matthew 6.26, that we are of more value than the birds of the air. We are also recipients of God's commands. God didn't give the commands to the animals. He said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And this responsibility is connected to the biblical concept of dominion. And, and it's not with our modern understanding of dominion, but more in, in, in the setting of the royal theology of the Old Testament. God has entrusted to us a special task 
with reference to creation, namely that we serve as his representatives. And we're to reflect the creation, the nature of God. We're to be image bearers. And guess what? You and I can't do that alone. We can't do that as an island by ourselves. As God had told, uh, you know, Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. Because when, when we do that, we're not imaging him properly. It's not in the context of community of, of who he is in his own nature. In the divine image, we also have a special fellowship. We're, we're grafted into the Godhead. We have, we have joined the perfect community. But oftentimes in our self-centeredness, we too, like Peter, want to say, hey, can I pitch a tent here? As Christians, we find our community and we just want to stay there. But what we fail to realize too is not only does God call us to be part of a community, it's not that you become a Christian and it's like, okay, I'm going to choose to go to church. No, when you become a Christian, it's like you're in the family. Welcome to the family, a corporate unit. But as the family, we just want to stay in our home. We don't want to go out. A little more on that here. And lastly, the divine image is a future reality. We're constantly coming back to this Revelation 7 image, right? This is the end. This is when the believers are around the throne. There's the elders. There's the four living creatures. And they're, they're just worshiping Jesus. And you know, one thing that I see so clearly is that none of them had regret. None of them were like, man, you know, wish I would have worked a little more. Wish I would have saved up and, and, and bought more things. Everything that they had suffered in life for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus Christ, it was completely worth it. They weren't even thinking about anything else. And it was all in that context of community. Complete community is perfected in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of course, it's a future reality. And one theologian comments, God's will for his creation is the establishment of a human society in which his children enjoy perfect fellowship with each other, the created world, and the creator. Can you imagine that one day when there's no more divorce, when there's no more backstabbing, when there's no more gossip, when there's no more slander, that day when Christ returns and he wipes every tear away from their eye? That's a future reality because the last two things that are thrown into the lake of fire are sin and death. But like I said last week, often as believers, we live in this gospel gap. We have this understanding that we've been forgiven of our past sins. We have an understanding that we have a future reality that we're moving towards. But we forget how the gospel and community impact the here and now. But I pray that you're beginning to see that as image bearers, we're to be in community. And do you guys know that change is a community project? The context of a body of people is, is the vehicle that God wants to use in where he changes us. Because when you put a bunch of sinners together, it's going to be ugly. All right? It's going to be messy. But when you have Christ as the head of that body, the gospel as the reality of that community, all right, change is going to begin to flesh itself out. But so many of us are, are scared. Or so many of us say, Chris, I already got community. I meet with my Bible study group once a week. That's about it. I'm not saying that's wrong. 
But I'm saying some of us here have just taken community to mean a once-a-week, three-hour meeting. And that's a lot different than the definition Jesus would give us when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Life on life, getting dirty, getting messy. Can you think about that? The son of God taking on the flesh of man, living among a people that despised him. But yet that's in the very nature of God. As God calls us to be image bearers in the context of community, God is also in his nature ascending God. The Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit. So as we come to community, it's not just for the purpose of gathering as community. We are reflecting him as image bearers, but it's also to be sent. Does this city need the gospel? There are people that you know that need the gospel. And a a testament to the living God is that the church be the church. It be a living reality and picture of the bride of Christ imperfect, but knowing that the head is perfect, Jesus Christ. So the most important reason as to why you and I are to be in community is not a benefit. It's the reality that God himself lives in a community within himself. God is calling our church to image him in that context. Now, gospel implications of that. As we move into life groups, Of course, this will involve looking at Jesus. It will involve us uh, getting messy with people. It will involve us having uh, people, you know, that love us, confront us when we're wrong. And I want that because I know I'm a fallible man. And I think that most of us in here could agree that, 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 that we need each other. And I can't tell you countless times how many uh, men have come into my life and said, man, this is wrong, Chris. Or just even questions saying, hey, are you leading your family? Are you loving your wife? Are you loving Jesus? Are you growing in it? Are you enjoying him, Chris? I have a friend that always asks me that every time I see him. First thing, I'm like, hey, how you doing? Chris, are you enjoying Jesus? Gets right to the point. And, you know, man, I have to answer that honestly. But that's in the context of community. And I don't know where everyone is here, but we're... The prayer is that as we, as a church, as we move into this transition, we're moving to a transition where it's life on life. And it's not just life on life for the sake of just forming this, this uh, insulated community. No, but it's doing life on life so that we could also be the church and be sent by him to the places that, that, that he needs us to be in the city. And we're really excited. And uh, um, next week, I'm uh, just going to um, give a little more on, on gospel implications for community. And we're also going to um, introduce you to, to our life group leaders and give you uh, a chance after the service to, to talk with them. And we're praying that God would uh, knit people's hearts together and that he'd be sovereign over that process. And uh, we're just going to walk with the Lord in that. And uh, we're going to pray that um, as we walk in faith in that, like we know that God's going to honor that and God's going to use that. And... Um, I'm just excited to see what he's going to do. And I just pray that, um, that the message that was communicated is that focus on God as a triune God, as ascending God. And that's what, that's what we would focus on as we move into life on life together. Amen? Let's pray. Philip Ryken explains, the Trinity is not an abstraction, but a living, working creator, redeemer, 
God is who he is in his triune being for our salvation. We are chosen by God the Father and Christ the Son through, the, through God the Holy Spirit. So we have already noted salvation is administered by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Spirit. To express the same truths in yet another way, the salvation that was planned by the Father has been procured by the Son and is now presented and protected by the Spirit. Whatever words we use to describe it, the point is that our salvation from sin depends on a gracious cooperation within the Godhead. Father, we just thank you that you are so amazing and beyond our comprehension. But we also just thank you simply for this, that you have made yourself known. And you have made yourself known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God, as as believers, we want to grow more and more in that, in the knowledge of the one who saved us. And God, we also know that you've called us to be image bearers. And we know that to, to properly image you, we have to be in a redeemed community. And that redeemed community, in essence, needs to keep growing as it welcomes in people from the outside and gives them a picture of gospel reality. So, Father, I'm just praying that you would um, begin to unwire the paradigms in which we operate. God, I know that I operate in paradigms that you're still changing to this day. Father, I pray that we would begin to see how much we really need each other. Father, I also pray against everything that the enemy is attempting to do. Whether, you know, that is to bring disunity or, or whatever it may be, God, we pray against that in the name of Jesus. And God, I'm praying that uh, through the ministry here at Cornerstone, Jesus, you be the head. And you said you're going to build your church and you have been. And in its simplest form, God, we're not called to make churches. We're called to make disciples. And it's just so interesting that when we get that order right, when disciples are made, churches are planted. So, God, I'm just praying that you would use um, these life groups, Lord, for that simple purpose of making disciples, of people coming together, submitting to the God who loves them and allowing the spirit to breathe in life-giving community as we simply partake in the Godhead where perfect community exists. And God, we know that that's going to be messy and we wouldn't expect anything less, Lord. You entered a messy world and redeemed it. And we're called to do the same, to allow you to work in us And to be called to the places you've called us to minister in our city. And God, I'm praying first that it would begin with the household of God. Because that's where it needs to start. Because unless we learn to love each other as a family, we can't love others outside of that. But we pray that it would never stop there. That as we learn to love each other as a family, as we learn to come together, that it would be that heart to expand your kingdom. To get more people in the family. So, God, we just thank you 
that the picture of you and your triune nature gives us the reason for why we need to be part of community. So be magnified, be glorified, and let the name of Jesus be lifted high in our city. In your son's holy and perfect name we pray. Amen.